you just heard. I am who I am because the I am tells me who I am. This is the essence of revelation. It is a word of encouragement to those who are in Christ. Your identity is not based on who, where you are, but on who you are. I don't know about you, but that's good news to me. It means that my identity is rooted in Christ and that his kingdom, his righteousness, his holiness will anchor my life no matter what circumstances might come around the corner. The reverse is also true. For those who are not in Christ, who are not linked to the I am, who are worried and disconcerted, Revelation is a word of warning, a word of things will not always be as they are. Prepare accordingly. Friends, today we're on the word of warning side. And I, as we begin, I want to encourage you, do your best to not try to guess at identities for those that will be described in what we've re read. You'll remember we talked last week, or two weeks ago actually, we talked the last time about how the bowls of wrath are poured out. The bowls of God's judgment are poured out. And I said then that we get a deeper dive into that in chapters 17 and 18. Today we take up the first part of that. In the section that our new deacon chairman Flo read for you a moment ago, we see how things are definitely different. One of the angels who poured out the bowls comes to John. Pick it up with me in verse 1 again. Come, the angel says, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters. Now, when we were putting this, this study together, I did not know that today would be the children's choir when we would be talking about the great prostitute. Let me just tell you, I would have arranged it differently, all right? Some of you are going to have to go home and explain what that is, and I'm sorry in advance. But I want us to take a, a faithful look at this, and I want you to see something kind of hidden here, something that might be easy to miss, especially after everything else we've been through, but I want you to see it just the same. When we get to this first verse of chapter 17, we see an angel. An angel approaches John with a command. Come and see God's judgment revealed. It's not that God's judgment was a surprise. Oh, friends, we've known it's coming from history past. But now it's going to be revealed in its fullest form. For you see, there's not much left in Revelation. For those of you who don't know, there's only 22 chapters. And for those of you who, who might not know, Revelation 19 is where things really begin to turn good. They begin to be sweet for us. Before we get there, though, an angel approaches John with a command, come and see God's judgment revealed. This request, come, it requires deliberate action. It requires John to do something about what he's heard. Has God ever asked you to do something that was a little difficult for you. I'm glad nobody said, yeah, I come to church this morning. <laughs> has God ever called you to do a certain task or has God ever said, this is the direction you're to go and you really didn't want to go that way? 
I want you to see something that isn't necessarily there, but I, I can't help but think about everything that our friend the Apostle John has been through to this point. I, I want you to think with me about what he's experienced in these first 16 chapters. He's seen the highest highs. He's been to heaven, and he's seen what it's been like. And now he is at the lowest lows, the wrath of God poured out. And now, yet again, the angel says, come. Have you ever stopped to think about John was just a man like we are? You ever stopped to think about maybe he was afraid from time to time? If he was, it just struck me as I was getting ready for today's talk, that fear might have entered the heart of John. Fear, that which prohibits obedience to God. We see it throughout Scripture and even in our own lives. The command itself is not difficult. But obedience is. When God commands us to take deliberate action, it's because he wants us to do what he's called us to do. The only thing stopping us is fear. Fear, that which prohibits obedience to God. Fear doesn't necessarily prohibit us as much as it does deter us. It causes us to say, can I really do this? Is this really a good idea? And you know one of my favorite things to do this time of year is take a walk over to a particular website for a, a, a haunted house that is in New Jersey. They set up a camera at one particular spot, and I couldn't get the copyright rights to show you those pictures today, but I invite you uh, to go to my Facebook page later today, and you'll find them there. The looks on their faces are priceless. And the reason they are so priceless is because they've set up this camera to catch them at just the most critical moment of the entire journey through the haunted house. Their face reflects their terror. They know they're safe, but their mind sometimes takes them places otherwise. Can I tell you today, friends, this is the essence of fear. It can deceive us. Rather than giving in to fear, though, John continues and we are better for it. We're continuing in obedience to God, even if it's to a place we didn't know we needed or wanted to go. Come, the angel says, I'll show you the judgment. Judgment, a corrective action, where things are going to be corrected. Things are going to be changed. The path you've been on needs a correction. And here we enter into judgment against the great prostitute the one who has sold herself, the one who has bartered her identity for someone else and for gain. Now, when you start reading through the scholarly notes regarding this, when John wrote this, it was clear in his heart and mind who this prostitute was. Rome. First century Rome. In the Old Testament, when we see prostitution, it's analogous to apostasy, selling oneself away from God and to sin. In Isaiah 1, Isaiah decries Israel's apostasy, selling herself into sin. Jeremiah in chapter 2, if you're reading through the Bible reading plan that we've been doing, then you read Jeremiah's first part just this week. Jeremiah calls Israel out there again, calling her shameless, she sold herself time and again to sinfulness of the world around her rather than giving herself to the fullness 
of God's grace. Her rejection of God's mercy has brought her destruction. Here, here she is receiving what she has earned. This is what happens when we reject God. Let's go back to this word of warning. For those outside of Christ, revelation is terrifying, and it should be. It indeed must be. Because it is the idea that things cannot continue the way they are. They must be corrected. God's holiness and righteousness demand it. So you can pay the price for your own sinfulness or have it paid for you by Christ, but the penalty must be paid. For those outside of Christ, like this great prostitute, friends, let me tell you, she will discover, oh, too late, that she cannot pay her own penalty. And so destruction must come. For those of us in Christ, this is not a moment of rejoicing. It's not a moment to celebrate. Our celebration is in the presence of Christ in chapter 19. This is a moment of sadness. It's like a pastor said some years ago, some people want to live in the sound, within the sound of chapel bells. I want to build a rescue mission a yard from the gate of hell. We should read this and go, hey, it's not too late. We can still redeem people. We can still get them to the Redeemer, and we can still lead them to truth and hope. They don't have to walk through this. The sad truth is, and it's reflected in the second half of verse 1, the great prostitute is seated on many waters. That's symbolism, apocalyptic symbolism. We've talked about this several times. The symbolism in the apocalyptic writings is sometimes a little bit complex. This, I believe, is a symbol for a broad constituency, the people. She, this great prostitute, is not alone. She is not alone. There's a lot of people who are with her. Millions, even billions, just like Jesus said in Matthew 7. Broad is the way and easy is the path that leads to destruction. Don't be surprised. There are many who go down that path. Most notably, verse 2 notes, the kings of the earth. They have committed sexual immorality. Throughout the earth, there are many who sold themselves to this great prostitute. And now, they've become drunk on that immorality, and they condemn themselves to the same kind of destruction that she has coming. The judgment the great prostitute has is now shared with kings of the earth. Not only the kings of the earth, but notice it there at the end of verse 2, the dwellers on earth, those who would still choose those who would embrace the path that the great prostitute and the kings of the earth have taken on. I caution you at this point, friends, against taking a path of least resistance. When you do that, you will find the path is indeed easier. It may, however, take you to a place that you did not intend to go. You see, if the, 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 the reality we're told, if Satan really told the truth about where he's taking people and about 
the direction he's taking them to get there, no one would go. Well, no, I don't want to do that. I don't want to wind up in a godless hell. I don't want to wind up destroyed. I don't want to wind up under God's judgment and wrath. But he doesn't tell you that, does he? He tells you, hey, everybody's going this way. It can't possibly be wrong. I'll give you a couple of things to take home with you. One, popularity doesn't guarantee anything. Guard yourself against the intoxication of popularity. There have been a great many people who were quite popular, and yet their popularity did not help them when push came to shove. It only cost them. Likewise, with ideas, there are some ideas that are propagated, put forth, I'll even say propagandized in our society, in our culture right now, that say everything's okay. We can do whatever we want. We have elevated the idea of self and freedom, and we have put down the idea of God and then the family. We have rejected God and the family in favor of our, our own selves. Those ideas are very popular, but they are destructive, and you will discover it only too late. Friends, I want to help you realize how to get there. When I'm trying to go somewhere, I'll usually start with a destination in mind and then draw a line back to where, from there to where I am. And that will tell me how to get there. It's sort of like we have a team of three that are leaving this week to go to India to work with some of our partners that are there and they're going to do an awesome job, and I'm delighted. I'm excited to hear about it. I'm excited they're going. I'm, I'm thrilled to death that we get to be a partner in that part of the world and, and to see what God is doing there. We're, we've been engaged there for quite some time. And, you know, it would be interesting if they got on the plane and the pilot said, well, I'm going to start that direction. We'll see if we can get there. Nobody would board, would they? Well, if you don't know how to get there, I sure don't. Be aware, friends, be aware that there are many who will tell you they know the way, but they don't. Only one has said, I am the way. I am the truth, and I'm the life. Many will be surprised. Here's the second thing I want you to take home. By God's judgment, don't be one of them. Don't be one of them. Speaking of air travel, this last... Uh, this last May, we went on a trip down to see my in-laws in, in uh, Baton Rouge. We were flying in, and the airplane we were on was flying through some rough weather. And let us pray that we get some of that rough weather today, praise the Lord, some rain coming our way, perhaps. And when we began to come down for a landing, something remarkable happened. We'd flown that route many times, and I knew it well. All of a sudden, we made a hard left turn and started going back up again, and I knew the weather was prohibiting us from landing. We were going a different way. We were going to take a different path, and indeed we did. We got down just in time for the weather to close the airport right behind us. Praise the Lord. Many will be surprised by God's judgment. Don't you be one of them. And now we get to the portion that is the most cloaked in, in an apocalyptic garment. 
and has perhaps been one of the most abused to be found in Scripture this side of Revelation 13. Carried away, John is, to see a woman on a beast. Read it again with me in verse 3. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names. And it had seven heads, ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of the mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus, carried away in the spirit. I want you to see this phrase right there at the front end of of verse 3, carried me away. It's as if John is being picked up and transported. This is now the third of four times that we'll see this phrase or something like it. He was carried away back in chapter uh, chapter 1, verse 10, and then again in chapter 4, verse 2, and now here, and then we'll see it again in chapter 21. The Spirit carries him away. This is something that we see pretty regularly. You'll find it in Acts chapter 8 with our friend the Apostle Philip. He carries him to where he wants him to be. Here, the Spirit takes him to the desert. Symbolically, a place of judgment, not a place of nourishment. Not a desert like ours, a desert like the Sahara. A place of wrath, a place where the woman will get what she has coming to her. The woman is sitting on a scarlet beast. She is arrayed in purple. Now, some have suggested that perhaps this woman arrayed in purple is from TCU. I'll choose not to speak to that. Others have suggested she's from LSU. I don't know. But I know this. The clothing that she is wearing represents wealth, opulence. She is representing herself well and, in her mind, putting herself in a place to oppose God with her wealth. She is declaring herself independent. I don't need God. Look at all this that I have. I don't need God. Look how gifted I am. I don't need God so I can afford to blaspheme him. I want you to see the blasphemous names that are written on the beast. Now, we do believe this is the same beast that we saw back in Revelation 13. These aren't insults about God like Nietzsche said, God is dead. God mocks that and laughs at it. These words are an attempt to replace God. Replacing God, that's why they are blasphemous. I don't know that we can say anything worse than, I don't need God. He is not relevant to my life. If we know, friends, that God's judgment is coming, then we can say with absolute clarity he's coming for all of us. 
None of us will be exempt from it, no matter how much wealth we might have. Our wealth will not insulate us from God's righteous judgment. These ten horns and their seven heads are akin to the beast that we saw back in Revelation 13. Later in John 17, John will offer an interpretation. I'm sorry, in Revelation 17, John will offer an interpretation. So we'll leave that for next week. This self-glorification, though, of wearing opulent clothing and having the jewelry and the pearls symbolizes the royalty that we see throughout history. Its rarity, expense, and difficulty in obtaining is why. Scarlet is associated with Satan himself in Revelation 12 and with sin in Isaiah chapter 1. Consider with me, if you will, a parallel. A parallel between what we've just read about the woman on the scarlet beast with the bride of the lamb in Revelation 19 and her purity, dressed in fine linen, bright and clean. She comes across this woman seated on the beast as one who is quite full of herself and we might say drunk. In her hand she holds a golden scepter representing a ruling of sorts, a ruling over those that are before her. But here's what I want you to take home with you. Her rule is limited to this time period. In the cup that she holds as a scepter contains abominations and impurities, all manner of wickedness. The moral uncleanness and ceremonial uncleanness stand in stark contrast to what God had in mind for his people. Everything about what I've just described for you in verses 3, 4, and 5 ought to cause you to say this woman is the very emblem of opposition to God and a rejection of his gracious gift. They have pegged out, if you will, on this warning side. They've thumbed their nose at God and said, I don't want or need God. I don't have any use for him in my life. I reject his authority and I reject the idea that Christ needed to die on my behalf. This is as far that direction as you can go. I want you to make a note at that point because when we come back to this next week, we're going to see what happens to this woman, to the beast, and to Satan who is giving them guidance. You see, the reality is, and I'd say this a second time, Satan's not telling the whole truth. What he's selling is something he can't deliver. Autonomy, independence, freedom. And the reality is, the only thing you've done is change masters from yourself to Satan. People will recognize it only too late that they've sold themselves into slavery to sin. Don't make that mistake, my friends. Let us also notice in verse 5, she has a name on her forehead. The name on her forehead is the mystery Babylon the Great. Now, some of your translations have mystery as a part of her name. We'll talk about that tonight at 5 at 5. I encourage you to be back tonight. There were several things that I just didn't have time for this morning, so we dropped them. We'll pick them up tonight. I encourage you to be back for that. 
five at five in the chapel, meet me over there. The phrasing is different. Grammatically, it can be either one. Greek is, is, is a flexible language at that point. For the purpose of this conversation, let us say that it represents a message shielded in secrecy. What we can say for sure is that Babylon the Great is stamped on her forehead. There's something awfully powerful about having something on your forehead. We see it in Revelation 13 as the mark of the beast gets put there. In Revelation 7, we see it as the seal of the lamb put on the forehead of those who are his. It is as if it is there that that's the first thing people see when they see you is your identity, who you are. And here, here, here she is with Babylon the Great tattooed on her. Babylon the Great. What does that mean, Babylon? Well, throughout the New Testament, we see this phrase Babylon used. Even though by the time our friends are writing the New Testament, Babylon really is no more. It isn't what it was back in Nebuchadnezzar's day in the time of Daniel and and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when they were the largest kingdom. No, Babylon is code. We know that. We find it in 1 Peter chapter 5, most notably, she who is in Babylon greets you. What does Babylon mean then in the New Testament? Most usually, it is code for Rome. Rome, the capital, really, of the entire world in that time. For us, though, what is Rome? It's a beautiful city where the Colosseum is. I don't know that that has much relevance to us. But what did Rome stand for? That does have relevance for us. She represents a godless pagan system opposed to Christ and his kingdom. She has a worldwide reputation for luxury, corruption, and power. She uses that to continue her sinful practices not only at home, but exports them to the rest of the world. Tacitus, an early church historian, describes her as where all the horrible and shameful things in the world congregate and find a home. Friends, we could name a lot of cities that fit that bill. There are a lot of places we could say, yeah, that's where he was talking about. The point is not what geographical location. The point is what spot. Are we willing to give to that? You see, Rome, Babylon in this passage, it's just a placeholder. A placeholder for any kingdom that rejects God, maybe even yours. Reality is these symbols that are being used here are just to direct us to look in the mirror and to make sure that we're not falling into the same trap. It is this woman who finds herself drunk, drunk on the blood of the martyrs. Revelation 7, we saw them under the altar, crying out for justice. Here, we see the great prostitute intoxicated in the power and slaughter of those in Christ. Perhaps John was reflecting on an event that must have been some 30 years earlier. Nero, 
A man who was borderline, if not completely insane, was ruler of Rome. I invite you to Google him later today and see the insane cruelty that he exhibited to those in Christ. When he needed a scapegoat for the city of Rome and the great fire that took place in about 60 A.D., Nero blamed the Christians, even though, legend has it, he himself set the fire. He needed a scapegoat, so he blamed the Christians and entered into a season of persecution, insane persecution, things like dipping them in tar, impaling them, lighting them ablaze to light his garden. His massacre is still one of the low-water marks of persecution in historical Christianity. While the scarlet prostitute sits in luxurious splendor, the people of God are slaughtered. But not forever. Not forever, my friends. The revelry that she is in right now, riding around fancy as she is, dressed in her best clothes and wearing fine jewelry, seated on a beast that looks like he's unbeatable, it will come to a sudden end. <coughs> Let me give you a couple of things to take home. One, selling oneself is a common practice. Don't let it happen to you. I'm not talking about your physical self. I'm talking about your spiritual self. Remember, you were bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. You might say, but Darren, I've done so many stupid, foolish, sinful things. Wickedness is my middle name. It is not too late for you if you're hearing this. The grace and mercy of Christ is enough even for where you are. This moment is one God has given you for repentance, for a rejection, and for a word of warning to switch to a word of encouragement. Finally, the people of Babylon are deceived into thinking they were made for prosperity and their own happiness. They will find out too late they were wrong. Don't let it happen to you. You were made for God's glory. Let me say that again. You were made for God's glory. Maybe you've never thought of yourself that way, but I want to tell you today, you were made for God's glory. And because God made you for his glory, that's why he wants you back. You were made by God, crafted and formed in his image. Today, you have the chance to take that back. Because here's the problem that most of us face. We get to a place, we sell ourselves into sin, and we get so far down that road, we're like, well, I've gone too far, it's too late. God can't take me back, he won't take me back. I've done too much. Oh, friends, that is a lie straight from the pit of hell. The whole reason Jesus came is for you. And maybe you've never thought about that, but today I want to tell you it is for you that Jesus came. If you'd been the only one, Jesus still would have come. He would have gone through all that he went through to purchase your spiritual freedom. Today, friends, let your heart and mind be captivated by this.
Jesus came for you. You were created for God's glory. Jesus came to redeem you back from the sin you sold yourself to. Let your heart and your mind rejoice in that. Be free in the Spirit of God and let the grace and mercy of Christ come upon you. How do you do that? Well, it's not hard, but it's anything but simple. Call on the name of Jesus. Admit that you're a sinner. Believe that Jesus is who he said he is and confess him as your Lord. That'll get you started. And then we'll take it from there. Maybe you need somebody to help you in that. Then come on down here. Just like at the price is right, come on down and we'll help you. This is a great day to get that conversation started. Maybe you need a church home. Come down and talk with us about that. Perhaps you need to be baptized. That's the first step of Christian obedience. Don't let fear hold you back from that. Come down and let's talk about that. This day is the day God has given you to find him. Pray with me, won't you? So today, Jesus, we remember that you came for us. Satan wants to keep people held hostage. We, Lord Jesus, know you want to set them free. I pray today, Father, for those who are hearing this, who are hearing this word from Revelation 17 and are frightened. While it is a reasonable response, I pray, Father, you would remind us that for those of us in Christ, these are just shadows. We can walk confidently ahead in the joy that you've already won. So we can stand with you in that victory. I pray today for that very thing. And Lord Jesus, today I pray for those who need to respond, who need to come down here and say, Darren, help me. I want to find my way back to God. I want to find my way to the mercy of Christ. I've sold myself the wrong direction, just like that great prostitute. But today, I want to go a new direction. I pray for freedom in this place, Jesus. And I pray you would do your work right here and right now. We give ourselves and our hearts to you. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.